Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this week, we're talking about media that we've really turned around on, but in a good way. It's not something that we start liking and then, ugh, ugh, that's gross. No, it's it's the kind of thing that you're kind of, eh, on it at first, and then you, you find something to love, something to grab onto, something to, to appreciate. You know, like the love handles of, of, uh, of media. So... There have been a few things, I think, that uh, I've certainly had this experience with. Rob, I know there's something you've been watching recently that actually sort of uh, spurred this topic on. Yeah, um, so this week we are in the middle of moving into our new place in, in northern Massachusetts. And you know how, like, when you're completely wiped, suddenly you just want a good sitcom, basically? Like, yes. you just need 20-minute bursts of light entertainment. Uh <laughs> So we settled on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is a show that I am surprised how much I like it. Now, we're only about halfway through season two, maybe. Okay. Uh, But from the start, I wasn't sure I was going to like it, Uh, in part because, like, the first impression the show made uh, was of it being very much an Andy Samberg uh, star vehicle in, in some ways, and, like... I like some of his stuff, but there's also sort of a almost noxious, aren't I the Dickens element of his <laughs> comedic persona. Like, it's like a more talented uh, Jimmy Fallon thing in some ways sure. of like, whatever sketch I'm in, whatever the bit is, it's about me and how like, adorably weird and wacky I am. Uh and that's kind of where I started with the show, and I was not sure I was going to be able to stick it out. Uh, but then a couple things sort of really started to come together. One is it just sort of emerges as this really, really talented uh, ensemble comedy, yeah. right? Like, those first episodes are very much, like, all about uh, Sandberg's character. And later, it's a lot more, you get a lot more of, like, Chelsea Peretti, um, Andrea Brower is utterly fantastic as the police captain. Uh, But it's a really strong cast all the way through. The other element of it is that a lot of the things that were grading about the, uh, what the hell's his name? Jake uh, Peralta, Jake Peralta character. Yes. Yes. Uh, The things that were sort of annoying about him that were very like classic, like Samberg comedy character things. (laughs) are contextualized later as also being signs of like how deeply dysfunctional the character is, right? Like how scarred he is by some of his experiences. And that that character is still there. It's still going to be that character is still going to be wacky in the same ways. But it's all seated now in a way that it belongs to sort of a cohesive reality of this show and its relationships in a way that no longer makes it feel like he's holding the entire show hostage to his like comedic abilities. And now it's more coming together as a, as a team. Yeah. I've only seen the very beginning of that show. Um, and I was, I'm, I'm kind of an Andy Samberg, not, not like hater, but he just, a lot of his comedy does absolutely nothing for me. But even, even at the beginning, I was starting to see kind of what you're seeing in it for sure. Like that ensemble aspect and just the, it's just funny to me. Like I, I work with New York cops all the time. I work with Brooklyn cops all the time to kind of see some of the like Brooklynite things coming out of it that were like a little bit amusing and a little bit kind of funny. Uh, but but yeah, it was it was already like 
I definitely see what you're saying. It was it was focused on him quite a bit, but it feels like this is the one thing I like him in. And then also, it seems like there's a lot of other things going on here that are very, very enjoyable. I had a very similar um, arc, I guess, with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is a show I adore and love. And I think it's really funny and like... What it does so well is uh, it does like sort of the interiority of the character's emotions. So it's a it's a musical series about a woman with like really, really severe mental illness, uh, who is also sort of this incredible overachiever, go getter kind of person. Her name's Rebecca Bunch on the show. I think it's uh, Rachel Bloom is the name of the actual sort of creator who portrays Rebecca Bunch. Uh, and she's a lawyer, like super high powered. And she moves from New York being in the like most high powered law firm to West Covina, California to sort of chase down this guy that uh, this really dopey kind of towny guy who's really hot and he's really like nice, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's sort of about her life and all her friends. And there's a lot of musical numbers and it's all very, very, very like twee and dorky and like very musical theater dorks, uh, you know grew up and made this show. That's very much how it feels. And at first it really turned me off. I was just watching this show and I was like, well, this is heterosexuality, the show. Like, that's what this is. She's, she's just talking about being like, I, all these men and all the ridiculous things I go through for them and, and just all the things she does to try to make herself attractive to this guy, basically. Um, and I, that was sort of a shallow, you know, sort of take from watching you know, a few minutes of one episode halfway through the first season that my girlfriend just happened to be watching. And I kind of took it to Twitter. I kind of said like, ah, man, I don't I don't know if I get it. I, I just don't know if I'm going to get this show. I don't, I don't know if it's for me. And a lot of people, a lot of like, you know, queer people that I know on Twitter were like, no, just honestly give it a shot. Like it's much more uh, an actual satire. It's an actual sort of tongue in cheek uh, smartly constructed show about these things. It's it's not sort of just invoking those things and leaving it there. It's actually invoking a lot of these things and saying something about them. So it's it's clever and it's good and it does a lot of things really well. And it also I really respect uh, how well it it sort of tackles mental illness and it shows a lot of the sort of the crazy tropes of like the crazy woman, uh, you know, a crazy woman in a relationship. I'm putting giant scare quotes yeah. uh, around that, of course. Uh, how a lot of those tropes are are just like really unhealthy behaviors that come out of mental illness. And we have such a difficult time treating them like mental illness because they are such stupid tropes that we have in our in our world, in our lives, in the way we were, you know, again, scare quotes, supposed to think about relationships and the way that men and women interact in relationships. So it's smart uh, and it's it's really like earnest and good natured as well. The most recent episode uh, almost made me tear up a little bit uh, in terms of a, like a really honest scene uh, where a character is kind of like kind of figuring out where they where they really stand in terms of their mental health and, and how they're kind of doing. Uh, so, yeah, it's also very funny. Oh, God, the, the songs are actually very funny. Sometimes I hum them. Sometimes I sing them to my cats. There was a song about cats in a recent one that made me feel very, very called out. I'll just say it. I felt a little called out there, but uh, I'm very glad. <laughs> does it feel like in, in a case like this, does it feel like the show is changing direction or is growing into what it was trying to be all along? You know, I think it's growing into that to some degree, but I, I don't think the show was uh, ever too far off of this track. I think I just didn't see it at first. I think I actually yeah. just 
really was being the shittiest version of myself, like seeing, you know, maybe one musical number in, in a couple of scenes and just being like, oh, gross. And not actually, you know, right. <laughs> sitting down and being like, OK, like, th- let's think about what it's doing here. Because once I did, once I watched for a couple of episodes, I was like, oh, no, I, I see it. Yeah, I see what you're doing there. All right. Cool. Cool. Uh, but, it, you know, I know that the title itself can be a little bit of a, of a thing for people like, oh, OK, it's called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Great. You know, it, <laughs> it seems a little off putting. Uh, in certain ways. And certainly the musical numbers are, they go for broke, including musical numbers about like, there's a great musical number from Paula, a character who is lovely, uh, one of Rebecca's uh, best friends. Uh, it's a, a song about the very first penis she saw. And she she does a whole number in a grocery store with like eggplants and cucumbers. And it's, you know, it's a very, I find it very funny, but I can imagine if this was like the first time I saw it, I might just be like, Okay, you're a musical theater nerd, and you thought this was funny, um, but everything actually does. I mean, live. that's a, it's a divisive form in and of itself, it right? Is. Like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like there's a lot of people that like musical theater leaves them utterly cold. Yeah, um, and I like I get that to some extent. Like, I used to like it a lot more than I do now, uh, in part because, like, I don't know, I just hit a point where. There's a songwriting style you find in a lot of musical theater that I find leaves me cold when listened to in isolation. Sure. Um, and at a certain point, I don't know, I get really, uh, I don't know, reductive about the entire thing where I'm like, well, if the music's not that good and I would prefer not to listen to it in general, <laughs> why then is it suddenly good in this context? And the answer is, of course, because the, that's the form, right? Like, right. <laughs> Debor- like the, it's an entire thing. Uh, not not just a not the sum of its parts, but uh, yeah, sometimes I can be a bit of a stick in the mud about it. Um, a show that I'm currently going through this arc with, and I'm not sure. I'm really in suspense because uh, I got a few more episodes left, um, and I still think it could totally suck. Uh, but I'm starting to come around on it a little bit. Yeah. Altered Carbon. Okay. All right. I really want to know what you think of this because I have heard so many things. Well, I think it's an it's an easy show to hate. Sure. Uh, like, and that's for a lot of reasons. Like, literally, the first uh, I I, mean, I almost probably we get to do a uh, waypoint one one on that at some point uh, because like the first twenty minutes of it are like it's all just going to try to make Austin Walker throw up. I think. <laughs> Like the first 20 minutes of Altered Carbon are like the most uh, we are wearing the skin of all your favorite cyberpunk things at once uh, and we're disgusting. Uh, That's kind of how it feels early on. And it actually I'm not sure it does successfully transcend that. However, the most recent episodes I saw um, started to bring me around. And I don't think it's an accident that one part of that is it basically does two things. Uh, one is sort of set in the present day in that show, in that show's world. And it has an entire episode that is basically cyberpunk Hercule Poirot. <laughs> like the entire, like it is an Agatha Christie ass episode of Altered Carbon uh, right down to like getting all the suspects in the room together and the detective talking through it. It's very cleverly done. 
Uh, it's really cool. And then the other thing that uh, happens, I think, in an episode earlier is a flashback that really adds a lot of weight and context to these characters. But where it started to concern me is that one of the things I found really um, effective in the flashback is it's starring uh, in the flashback. So the character played in the present day is played by, I think, a Swedish actor, mm-hmm. uh, Joel Kinnaman. But the character is a Japanese man. Okay. Uh, or at least, at least like uh, of some Japanese ancestry, uh, Takeshi uh, Kovach. And in the flashbacks, he's played by an Asian actor, Byron Mann. And the flashback episode was very, very good. Now, part of that is because the character in the present day is sort of a hard-boiled detective type, doesn't emote very much. But there was also a part of me that was like, it's a little bit less um, white bro protagonist in some ways. And I'm here for that in that episode. Yeah. Like, but this show started to show that like it had some cool ideas that it was willing to work with. I'm not sure it's enough to overcome the, all the really clear uh, things that is lifting or borrowing or stealing from Blade Runner, from Neuromancer. Um, a little bit from Snowcrat, you know. It's 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 yeah. hit, it's checking all those boxes, right? And like, I'm really hard pressed to identify anything about it that is its own style. Uh, it really feels a lot like those Fox shows that they made, um, Almost Human and uh, Minority Report. Oh, right, right, right. Except, yeah, but on like absurd Netflix budget and uh, you know. And lack of content restrictions. So, yeah. like, it's a... Th- but, like, the first few episodes, I was so put off by that thing. I was just grimly hanging on because uh, <laughs> I was watching with friends. And then around midway through, I started to feel like, all right, I could maybe get with this. Yeah. When something just starts to get its hooks into you, it's just like, it's like you've been infected with something. It's very... does feel a little bit like that. Like, like, yeah, maybe it's just Stockholm Syndrome, right? Maybe it's just like, well, you're five episodes into this. Time to start caring for no good reason. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I think I mentioned this in our actual Blade Runner episode, but I I really disliked Blade Runner the first time I saw it. Yeah. uh, Yeah, I mean, we already already covered that ground, but it's it's funny to me uh, that it would it would later become like, oh, God, a movie I, I you know really need to know what everybody's opinion is on it because I love it so much. It's it's like almost its own little uh, thing for me. It, and I actually had a similar reaction not to, uh, you know, I know we, we talk about games a lot oh, on this yeah. podcast, but I'm thinking the most about a book uh, after sort of the crazy ex-girlfriend is like the most present uh, example in my mind of this phenomenon, but there's also a book that I certainly had this happen with, and it was actually the first uh, Song of Ice and Fire book. It's a Game of Thrones, which is, you know, the name of that first book in the series. I remember reading it uh, in grad school and hating it. Just, oh my God, it was just like the worst slog through all this just sexist bullshit of like medieval man being a manly medieval man and all the ladies are just kind of there and they're just, you know, either either it's Cersei, who's like the sex pot Cersei, which she is in the book and the, the show. There's there's significant differences, but whatever. Um, and Daenerys, uh, especially in the first book, is a 13-year-old girl. 
uh, who's married to this guy she doesn't uh, know how to communicate with at first. So it's just this like, there's kind of nothing there if you're a lady and yeah. you're not into like, you know, I mean, later on in the series, absolutely. There are some really, I think, awesome women characters uh, for sure. Um, but there's not a whole lot going on in that first book uh, for that. And, and this was also, um, you know, I, I wasn't much of a fantasy reader at the time. I suppose I'm not really much of a fantasy reader uh, now either. Uh, but, you know, certainly dip my toes in every here and there. And I and I have some fantasy favorites, uh, but it was really such a slog to get through that first book for me. And I enjoyed it enough. I mean, the, the, it is a, a really enjoyable book series in general. I mean, but there's what, a lot of what eventually action. brought you around. Well, uh, God, I'm trying to think really in terms of specifics. I, I think the story really did sort of capture me. It is really well paced other than the pages and pages of like recipes and songs and shit that I. <laughs> Occasionally, I'm just like, that's nice. That's cool. You've got a song. I'm sure there's a lot of deep meaning here, and I'm sure it's very symbolic, and I'm sure whatever. There's 75 pages on Wikipedia about it, but I, I'm sorry. I don't give a fuck. I want to know actually what's kind of going on here. I want to know how the characters feel. I want to know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> I was eventually like really enraptured by the characters and the pace, I think. Um, but it took me almost a whole school year to get through that first book. And I'm not a I'm not a fast reader by anybody's stretch of the imagination, but that's slow even for me. Uh, and then I and I whipped through the next two books in the series in like uh, I think like a I went on a cruise or something and I like got through the next two like within uh, like a week or two of like I was on that cruise. So I was reading all day and then, you know, uh, kind of whipped through the rest of the, uh, the the first books in the trilogy quickly at that point. Uh, but yeah, man, it was, it was such a slog. It was such a slog. And now maybe I have slightly complicated feelings on the entire endeavor. You know, we, it was just announced that, oh, it's going to be another year till the next book, uh, by George R. R. Martin, uh, the next book in the series. And he's off, you know, he's been doing writing for the show, I think. And then also writing all these kinds of like spinoff stories, which I've enjoyed some of the spinoff stories, certainly. The Dungeon uh, Egg stuff is fun. Yeah, it's really fun. I really liked that. Yeah, the graphic novels. Um, yeah, they're great. They're really good. But I, I'm, I'm almost at this point where I'm like, I don't know if I care anymore. I just really liked those those books like at the time. And now I'm kind of like, I, I don't I don't know if if my attention like I'll read it, I'm sure when it comes out. But we're at this point where the, the show became almost a little bit of a parody of itself yeah, that that's the big part. Like <laughs> before these most recent seasons, I was so dying for a new book. Yeah. And then seeing the resolutions that they're settling on, the way they're making things happen, like maybe it will come together better in the book, but it just feels to me like oh, uh so this is all there is. Yeah. Uh basically like yeah. in the end you don't have it like in the end, it doesn't feel like there is all that much to this, right? It just feels like it was a really ornate, long lead up to, look, we need some fucking dragons to fight zombies. <laughs> exactly, right? It's it's very... I guess I don't know what I was expecting, right? I, I guess there... Uh, it's not that I thought that he could pay off everything, or that or he, you know, the author, or, or whoever works on all of the things, which I guess is a very tremendous amount of people now at this point. It's not as if I thought there would be some amazing payoff, but we've talked a lot on Idol Weekend about how we're usually the type of uh, 
media readers, whatever, however you want to put it, uh, who enjoy the characters and the moments and the events more more so than than just sort of the plot points or the you know it's, it's why yes. we're less affected by spoilers uh, than some people are. And again, that's that's you know if if you care about spoilers, I'm not going to throw poop at you. It's fine. It's just the you know the type of 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 sort of media consumer that we are. We've always talked about being like yeah, I, I'm I'm in it for 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 the moment to moment. I'm in it for the characters. But I guess this is going against that in some small degree because it's almost like, well, now that I know how it's working out, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> no, but I, I think <laughs> uh, no, because I think part of that though is the way it is working out isn't paying off for the characters at all. Yeah, that's it's, a good point. It's yeah. moving them in. It's turning them into little like game pieces that are moving around the board, right? And they are making things happen. Events are happening that feel meaningless or totally divorced from the character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's that's kind of uh, where I'm at, and like, I'll see how it ends. But I increasingly don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, like it's, I don't know. It's a cultural phenomenon that is that I am sort of now part of, but it's clearly like creatively run its course. Yeah, um, yeah that, that that's a very good point. <laughs> God. Man, I'll tell you. So one of the uh, weirdest like ways to come around on something, yeah, in high school, or maybe it was middle school. I don't remember when. Uh, one of our summer reading books was *Tombs of a Twan*. Okay. By uh, Ursula Le Guin, and I bounced off that so hard. Like I, I read it, I finished it, but I hated it. Um, and <laughs> part of it. A part of it, I think, is it is just such a profoundly gloomy book. Sure. Um, and it's meant to be. But, like, Tombs of a Twan is about, like, a little girl living in, like, uh, a death cult nunnery, basically. Like, and she is being trained to serve, like, the gods of the underworld and navigate their tomb, uh, which is this, like, completely pitch black um underground cavern and the rule is that like people who go in there can bring no light right you have to walk huh. blind through this uh you know through across these chasms and and around this this hellish cave but really a lot of the book is not very much happening right it is a little girl, girl sort of musing on her current situation uh being hissed at by evil nuns uh and then a hero arrives who's basically trying to like apparently steal some shit from the tomb and the real conflict for her becomes like do i help this guy or not because like if they find him they're gonna totally kill him and he's you know he's there saying like well really all this is kind of bullshit like this is this is a cult worshiping an empty tomb uh basically and this isn't worth your life. Like that, you're a prisoner here. You're not. You're not. You're not a priestess. You're a prisoner. <laughs> and it's an interesting-ish story, but it was completely out of context. Um, and so you know, a like age thirteen or whatever. I want my fantasy to be Lord of the Rings, right? Like, where's, <laughs> where's my fucking battles? Where you know, where's all that good stuff? And this ultimately, I think, comes down to. Is she going to help this stranger or not? That's ultimately what this story boils down to. And 
I didn't really feel any stakes to that or connection to it. It wasn't until years later that I, like, literally I had no idea that there were other books in the series. (laughs) So it wasn't until years later that I realized the hero who walks into uh, Tombs of Tuan, uh, I I think Ged is his name. He's the main hero of a number of the Earthsea books. You're supposed to know who he is from the first book. Like, he is an important character, and we should know instantly that, like, okay, he's, like, he's shown up, and he, you know, he, like, he's not just some random, like, grave robber, basically. But he, <laughs> he's, uh, you know, he's, like, the, uh, you know, not quite, Gandalf is the wrong way to put it. Um, he's more like the storm of okay. an entire, like, culture. Uh, that's, that's kind of who he is. And so years later, I read the first book, which is all about how he goes from being basically a a farm kid, uh, to the greatest wizard of the age. And then the second book is seeing him through the eyes of a a stranger, uh, in a completely different culture. The other coin that didn't drop (laughs) until ages later, um, is that in the Earthsea books, Ged and his entire culture from this like archipelago um, are all people of color. Ah. And this land across the sea that he's visiting, this backwards death culty like hellhole with like Viking ass raiders, is a white culture. Huh. And it's not. In some ways, it's not crucial to the story, but it is kind of crucial if you know if you follow. Yeah, like, yes. it's not that it's a story about race, but it's flipping a lot of genre conventions and assumptions uh, around, and portraying recognizably like Northern European culture as uh, you know shitty backwards. Uh, you know what we, what we customarily call barbaric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And it is, and instead, where a lot of the, like, knowledge and civilization, as we we recognize it, reside, is in a place that looks a lot like what we call the Global South. Um, So that's the other crucial part of this context, is that it isn't just that he shows up and is like, whoa, 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 like, I'm a magician, and you're worshipping an empty tomb. He's posing an entire like civilizational challenge to somebody who's never thought beyond their little, you know, the the, the confines yeah. of their world. Uh, that all went by me at like twelve or thirteen because literally from like when I first read that book, I was like, "So is this girl going to help the guy or not? I don't really care, but like, <laughs> let's let's get a move on here because like uh, Hamlet in the cavern is getting old." Uh, and then, like, the, when I went through it years later as part of the entire Earthsea series, uh, suddenly I was like, holy shit, this is, this is a masterpiece. I understand why this was being taught uh, is because it is, it is, like, flipping a lot of relationships around. But all that went by me the first time. Ah, uh, God. The amount of, uh, the amount of uh, actually vital to society things that went over my head at 13, uh, like Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> okay. A lot of that went over my head. A lot of the racial and uh, sort of workplace elements of that went by my little head. So I, I, I understand. I definitely understand. Um, I think if if 
if that if that sounds like a good solid amount of stuff we've we flipped yeah. our own scripts on uh but of course this this is always a continuing topic because i have weird complicated feelings often uh <laughs> on media but i think it's time for us to uh go into our weekend correspondence i'm gonna read this first question here uh from greg in helsinki greg writes hi danielle and rob your most recent discussion of the power fantasy we seem to love in our sci-fi reminded me of something i've been pondering for a while Namely, how will our society work and be structured if we become spacefaring? All we seem to base it on is the hierarchical military structure of Western navies, which have been inherited by air and space forces. Even in civilian cases, there's a chain of command with the captain being the ultimate authority once a ship is in motion. We accept this as if we merely, uh, if we were merely in transit or on board for a vacation if it's a cruise. But if we have to live on board, then how does our society work or change? What place is there for democracy in such situations? Can you think of any other structures, stories, or societies that we could draw upon as examples of how humanity could become mobile? Hmm. I, I feel like I haven't read enough Ursula Le Guin, but I wonder if she had <laughs> some ideas about this. Oh, I mean, sure. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, there's the Raft people um who pop up in those in those books um although that's that might be a little unfair because in some ways they're more like seaborn um uh. almost inuit i think because like the whole idea with them is most of the time they live completely isolated from each other aboard their little one family ships or or extended family ships and then once in a great while i think there's like a gathering uh where they basically create a city out on the open ocean huh. um that's pretty cool. It's an interesting idea. Like, I mean, um, like any sort of nomadic people, like a lot of them do fall into sort of tribal hierarchies, which end up, I think, probably looking a lot like a lot like authoritarian relationships. Uh, but not all of them. Like, I'm not sure. Um, like, I'm not sure the Romani, uh, sort you know communities tended to work that way mm -hmm. um but like i don't know enough about it I, I i suspect it's really hard to break away from hierarchical structures when i just i suspect when you when you have when you're when you're sort of connected to a group that has a really tenuous existence right uh because a lot of times the ability to make key decisions pretty effectively is is the crucial one. Right. If if all that stands between you and a vac the vacuum of space is uh, making like sort of having having a very established structure for how things go down and how decisions get made. It it and again, I I am a product of Western thinking, so I'm saying this with that in mind. That's I guess that's the part that's appealing, right, to me or to to another sort of Western mind, you know. Or American mind. I guess we can make it more specific to that. Um, the thing about it is there have been, and again, I'm not an expert in this. I would like to know more about this. If you know more about this, please write in to, uh, <laughs> to Idle Weekend. Um, but there certainly have been societies uh, that have had completely different structures. There have been matriarchal societies. There have been societies that are more democratic about the decision-making process. And Frankly, throughout humanity, uh, throughout the history of humanity, we've always been uh, in, in fear of extinction. We've always been, you know, it, it doesn't take that much to kill us, right? If you, if, uh, whether it's the vacuum of space or 
the threat of starvation or the threat of, you know, uh, hordes of wild animals that are going to tear you apart or the threat of not having enough water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's always been a threat. So it doesn't necessarily make sense that there's only one way of doing this, right? I suspect there's a lot of very interesting and, and useful ways of thinking about societies and thinking about decision-making power. I'm thinking about this a lot lately as well because I'm reading the Expanse books, uh, which I love, and I think they're really good and well-written. Um, <clears throat> but certainly, this is an example of that. There are navies. There's the Mars, the Martian Navy, and there's the OPA, and there's the you know United Nations Navy of Earth. Uh, and Holden was in the you know U.S. Navy, and then he became an XO uh, on on a sort of civilian ship, but he was still flying. He was still an XO. There was still that structure. So. It all exists. It all sort of exists in that world, certainly, as well. And there are, you know, sort of belter colonies that are less uh, structured that way, that are less hierarchical. Uh, so I suppose there's there's a little bit of exploring some of that stuff, but it, it less it's less in the forefront and more uh, it's more in that, that vein of like different factions and different uh, allegiances and how they make those allegiances and how you make decisions in those moments, which, of course, is something I enjoy. But I would love to know, I really would love to know about how different societies have, have sort of solved the problem of how do we solve problems quickly and effectively uh, so that the fewest of us die and the most of us are happy and live uh, for another day. <laughs> well, right. And situations that like require at least a certain level of cohesion. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think like also I think it matters a great deal if you're talking about like one giant arc ship. Uh, which does start to look an awful lot like a like if everything is dependent on the one vehicle, <laughs> then like I start seeing more argument for again like a sort of centralized power structure, uh, just to because like the the nightmare there there's like it is it is an indivisible resource right like right. that's the that's the concern, um, but I think if you're talking more about like more of a nomadic model where the culture can sort of separate and fan out and then come together. Uh, then obviously there's different po like different possibilities open up, but yeah, what tends to happen and get represented over and over again is, uh, yeah. What if it's a 19th century man of war, uh, right. or a 20th century aircraft carrier, but with people living on it, what would that be like? Um, and we don't see too much of the, uh, too much of the the other the the other possibilities uh a show that's interesting on this is um oh fuck what is it the 100 i have not seen it but that might this the the, the teens being dropped onto an irradiated earth um, oh yeah yes i think it's yeah, yeah the 100 um and so all of society lives aboard like space stations orbiting the earth. Mm. And that has become more of a uh, consular thing because like within those space stations, there are different like cultures and different cultures and communities owned different parts of it basically. And so everything is much more not quite democratic because it's not really direct democracy, but everything is much more consultative. Um, although obviously again, like in that fiction, and I, I think this is the other rub, uh, people accrue power to themselves. And I think one of the attractions of the, 
well, we'll put it into a strict hierarchy, um, you know, like a, like a vessel of war, is that at least to some idea, the mission is very simple. Preserve the, ship, preserve the lives of the ship and the crew. Yeah. Um, and no other interests really count. And that is appealing because I think it's not like, again, this is sort of the appeal of fascism that we were talking about in those shows <laughs> right. in that episode. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to just entrust somebody with the right training and character to take care of that stuff and look after the well-being of, of, of the ship and the crew? I think what tends to terrify us is the idea that you'll have that you'll have politics of, you know, aboard, aboard a ship right. and people acting, pursuing interests that are not really the groups, but are more self-interested. Um, and yet their ambitions are going to influence the trajectory of that, uh, of that ship. It's an interesting, oh, I am super just, curious yeah. if there's a lot of sci-fi that, that covers this stuff. I, I thinking about it, the, there's a book that I did mention briefly at, at one point on this show. It's called Twenty Three Twelve, and it and it, it it posits a lot of things for the future, but it does posit some certain structures. I'm trying to think of a good way of putting this. The world, uh, the universe of, of of that book was very hopeful in tone, uh, and the book didn't really completely come together in a lot of ways, but it did have a lot of interesting ideas, and it did. It did have cool ideas. Again, I, I think I mentioned in terms of like sexuality and gender and, and bodies uh, and all, all kinds of different people sort of ride their own. Like they, people have taken a lot of asteroids from the belt and sort of hollowed them out and made entire terrariums and, and sort of worlds. And there's it just allowed for a lot of individualism and uh, in terms of decision making power and in terms of things like crime and punishment, there is sort of a intergalactic force that can that does investigations and so on and so forth. But people are very much free uh, to kind of explore uh, the world of their choosing or to kind of do whatever jobs they want to do in this sort of uh, this weird economy, uh, which kind of feels to me not exactly nomadic, but certainly technocratic because, oh, the technology has enabled us to not worry about resources. That's essentially a lot of what had, had kind of gone on there. Uh, people care about their projects, like enti entire sort of cultures uh, have have sort of colonized planets and they care about their projects. They're going to terraform everything and make it nice and make it friendly to humans. Uh, I don't know how tenable anything in that book was, but yeah. it did. It certainly did ha present some ideas uh, towards this for futures. And there really wasn't a strict hierarchy for much of anything uh, that was going on. One of the main characters was this very like free spirit kind of person who... You know, she spent various times during her life as like an artist who makes sculptures on Mercury. She just makes cool sculptures and goes running around on Mercury. At other times in her life, she, she you know, worked on terraforming projects or worked on, you know, creating safe areas for animals to live. So there, there was almost like a, a nomadic quality to her character, I suppose. <laughs> kind of an interesting book. But yeah, it's and. I wish we didn't all have a military fetish, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say. We yeah. could, like, see past these things a little easier, maybe. Uh, but, yeah. Cool. So, I know we'll have, we'll probably have more letters uh, next week, but I know we got to make it a, a slightly quicker episode yeah. today. So I, so, I think it's time we should go into our, our weekend projects. Rob, is there anything you are enjoying lately in particular? Uh, I sure am. Oh. Um, so, I've been, uh, I've, been, I've been watching a lot of Rubicon. Oh, um, which 
I was not. I've been a little bit like curious about this show for ages. Um, and it is a very, it's, it's, it's a, it's an espionage drama, uh, basically. Ooh. And like, I got a strong, uh, the Americans vibe off it. Oh my God. Ways. I'm already interested. Well, the problem is it was already canceled. Uh, oh. it came out in like 2010 and it lasted a season and it's, it's, it's produced out of New York. Uh, so it like has, I think it might even have some character actors, uh, that, pop up on the Americans at certain points. I could be wrong, but it's just, it, I don't know. It has that vibe. It has that feel that New York television shows often have, uh, yeah. you know, it's like pr- there's probably some production house crossover location shooting, uh, crossover <laughs> sure. between this and the Americans, but it's about, uh, it's, it's sort of doing a three days of the condor thing. Um, where a, not CIA analyst, but he's like part of this like super secret think tank. Uh, stumbles on a conspiracy. His boss is murdered under mysterious circumstances. Like, oh, th- like he di- dies in a mysterious accident, basically. Uh-huh. And he basically has to start investigating his own like intelligence agency while also stepping up into a larger role within the organization. And so it is half workplace drama uh, where it's about like, it's just workplace stuff, but they're all a bunch of like analysts. They're all spy spy analysts. But then the other part of it is a deepening like web of conspiracy. And I am so hooked on it. Uh, it, it is it is such a good um, it is such a good show. Uh, and I am so heartbroken that I'm running out of episodes. Oh. I am just about done with it. Yeah. Um, and that means like I'm gonna miss some favorite characters. Uh like it's got a great lead, uh James Badgedale, uh from the Pacific, uh is terrific in it. But the character I've really come to adore is this guy, Kale Ingram, mm-hmm. um, who starts out as and maybe finishes as this like frighteningly ruthless and aloof and manipulative. Uh, boss, like he is, a hundred percent feels like the man behind the curtain in some ways. Oh yeah. And then about midway through, you realize he might not be part of this at all. Like he's he's a scary career spy, but he starts to like cotton on to the fact that there's something you know something rotten in the state of Denmark, right? Ooh. And he starts trying to conduct his own investigation. But the other cool thing is. In addition to him being a terrifying, like, spy, former assassin, all this stuff, uh, we also eventually see he is uh, a happily married gay man uh, who, in his domestic life, is the the bougiest, uh, (laughs) you know, sweetest, and maybe most pretentious asshole you can imagine. Uh, Like, endearing, but also kind of like... He's very proud of the fact that like he bought into a cheap apartment ages ago and now owns it and now the neighborhood's great. You know what like you know what I mean? Like yeah, he's yeah. also like as gentrifying as you can get. Uh but he's in this <laughs> in this really happy relationship. Uh he has these weird relationships with his coworkers where on the one hand he views them all as pawns and like fucks with them relentlessly 
to yeah. try to ferret out their secrets and sort of turn them against each other and figure out what's happening within the org, but then also does legitimately and deeply care about their lives uh, in some ways. And so he's like this really enigmatic character. And a lot of the characters in the show are similarly well-drawn and well-written. And yeah, for 12, 13 episodes, uh, it is a great spy drama. And here at the end, I'm sort of on pins and needles to see how it's all going to resolve. And unfortunately, I know that it's never going to. God, that's such a difficult feeling. I know I'm, I'm going through that with my own personal, you know, you know, dark matter. I'm going through it with dark matter. Yeah. Right now. Oh, it hurts. It's just unfair. Man, okay. Well, uh, that sounds awesome. I'll probably watch it and be very sad as well uh, at some point in my life. Uh, but my weekend project is a game this week. I guess it's the only time we've talked about games um, on this episode. We, we almost went, we almost did a whole one. I almost want to like think of a book or something nope. instead. We're uh, into games yeah. now. We're, I guess we're doing games in the last uh, five minutes here. Uh, but the game in question uh, is a really, really cool personal game. It's called All Our Asias. All Our Asias, I suppose. I'm trying to enunciate. You know how it is sometimes with me and vowels. Uh, but All Our Asias. It is a game by Sean Hantani, uh, who previously worked on Anodyne and Even the Ocean, games I've adored and loved uh, really, really quite a bit. Uh, and this is almost entirely his work. I think he, he had some musical collaborators. Uh, and on the previous games, he was actually sort of the musician and uh, designer and did some of the writing. Uh, but this is an almost entirely solo project. And it's a really cool game. Uh, it uses this really incredible, uh, I think incredible, PlayStation 1 style sort of aesthetic to explore a lot of uh, ideas about identity and sort of your place in the world. The framing of it is that uh, you play as Yuito, who is a, a young guy, Japanese-American guy, who uh, he, he was sort of estranged from his father, and he got a message from his father uh, wanting to reconcile. And as soon as he sort of rushes to the hospital, his father is dying. Uh, he was almost far gone. He's he's in a coma. So he uh, Yuito actually undergoes this sort of semi-scientific, semi-supernatural uh, kind of procedure so he can enter his father's mind uh, and sort of uh, understand his memories and sort of at least try to understand his dad and where he came from and all the things that kind of happened in his life. It's a very abstract game. Uh, you know, there's there's quite a few threads kind of going on in it. You encounter certain fragments of memories and sort of piece together little bits and pieces of uh, his father's life and different things he did, different people he knew. Uh, there's a lot of themes going on. There's a lot of good, crunchy uh, stuff about representation and uh, identity, uh, specifically to Asian-American identity. Uh, but I think it's it does that thing that it is so specific uh, to, to a person's lived experience uh, that it's actually pretty universal. Like, anybody can understand something as long as it's uh, very honest to that point of view. I guess I'm not articulating this well, but there is a certain universality, I think, in a type of honesty and intimacy, I suppose. Um, and this does that so, so well. Really, really interesting uh, game. Really cool to look at. I like the music. Uh, and it's one of those. I, I think it's actually free. You can just download it for free. Or if you really like it, you can do the sort of $5 thing uh, where you get a actually really extensive art book. It's like 160 pages uh, oh, wow. of sort of explaining the art, the artistic choices, uh, going through everything about the inspiration for the music, including like even the like Ableton tables, like the actual the songs themselves are sort of written out so you can see them. Uh, really cool stuff. Uh, I, I love that level of care and detail uh, that goes into personal work. 
there's a lot of personal work out there that is uh, interesting, but maybe not the, you know, like people make all kinds of things on all kinds of sort of scales. This feels to me like a very well done and very, uh, uh, I guess you could say polished uh, piece mm-hmm. of very personal work. And, and it's a good like 90 minutes, two hours long as well. So it's it's not really like a, you know, sometimes I appreciate a, a 10 minute game, but this was like a felt like a real meditation on something. So all our Asia's that is my weekend project. And I think that's going to do it for us. So we should head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. Keep up with the latest from us. Follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And we would really appreciate it if you would rate us on iTunes, give us a little little rating there. Or also, if you would tell your friends, tell your parents, tell whoever it is that you think might enjoy the show. Tell, you know, tell all the people that you watch shows that you've come around on uh, about us, because we hope we're relevant to you. And that really is the best way uh, to help us out. So we do appreciate it when you do that. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. <laughs>